Well, it's our great privilege now to hear from the living God as we study His inerrant Word. And so if you would take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. I can, I can, uh, I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, but I can guess that uh, not too much longer and your Bibles are just going to go like this to <laughs> Ephesians, right? And uh, you all might be having children and grandchildren by the time we get to chapter 6. But hey, it's a great book. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1. Again, this wonderful epistle speaks of the great spiritual treasures that belong to the Christian, to those in the body, to those in the church. This is a treasure house. It's a treasure chest of, of the blessings that are in the heavenlies, as verse 3 would tell us there. The first three chapters of this book, there are no imperatives whatsoever. It's all details. It's facts, indicatives. Chapter 4 through 6, there's over 35 imperatives. So, Verses four or chapter four through six is the exhortation of how to live out the details of one through three, how to live in a manner worthy of this God. The last few weeks, as we've been looking at Ephesians, we have taken time to examine closely the introduction, not only what is said, but why it's said, and not presuming that we know what these things, what, the, what these details mean, or even who Paul is, we, we took the time to examine closely. For instance, let's just read the first two verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We follow the New Testament over the past couple weeks, and learned who Paul is. Saul of Tarsus, a zealous Pharisee who thought it was his duty to eliminate the followers of Jesus Christ from Jerusalem and did such a good job in Jerusalem. He was on his way to Damascus, which was to the northeast of Jerusalem. He was like a lion that hunted sheep. He hunted down God's people, threw them into jail. He uh, called himself sadistic and a blasphemer. He was an evil guy. But he thought he was doing God's business as a Pharisee. But he was miraculously converted on the Damascus Road, as most of us know. And he is a poster child of God's saving grace. We also spent time learning in the New Testament of what the New Testament says about an apostle. A true apostle, because there are many false apostles in the first century as there are today. There's many false apostles continuing. Among the many details that we saw from our study of apostles, we learned that the Apostle Paul is the last one called and commissioned by Christ himself. There are no other apostles after Paul. Last means last. There are no other apostles. And so we, we learned that by establishing this, Paul's establishing his credibility to his readers and to us He's establishing his authority as to why they and us should listen to what he's writing. He is saved by sovereign grace. He is called and commissioned and put into service by this Lord for the Lord's purpose. It was all of grace. It was all of grace. Last week, we took the time to examine the term saint, if you remember. Is saint referring to uh, superstar Christians? Right? A spiritual elite? 
or the, as some, as the Catholicism would say, one who uh, bypassed purgatory and got into the very presence of God on your behalf, he will pray for you if you go to him and all that kind of stuff. Is that, is that what a saint is, is an elite superstar believer? We emphatically say no, because if that's true, then the book of Ephesians is not to you nor to me, because none of us fit that identification, if that's true, okay? But among all the details that we looked at, we concluded from the New Testament that every single born-again person, every true believer in Christ Jesus, every person who is in the body, they are called saints. Because we said a saint is from the word holy, holy ones. Holy means to be set apart from the world of sin, set apart unto God for his service. That's what the New Testament came to mean by holy ones. We are, and holy ones are, uniquely God's. For his service. I would add to that, because there's so much confusion and such, that no good deeds that one does makes you a saint. No good deeds affects your sainthood positively any more than no sinful deed keeps you from sainthood and no sinful deed detracts from your sainthood. It is entirely a gift of grace not merited in whatsoever by the recipient. It is God's doing. He sets you apart. The Spirit sets you apart. We saw that last week, and we'll uh, leave it at that. So then, it's an act of God that started in before time, but came into your life when He called you out through the gospel, converted you, set you apart for Himself. It is uh, an act of grace. It is a permanent and present reality that you are a saint. Okay? All right. Therefore, the book of Ephesians is to you and I. Right? Because we, we match that description. So then, all that to say, we come now to Paul's greeting in verse 2. Right? And you're going, wow, this guy really is slow. Um, <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> right? But I think you will be so surprised because I doubt many here except maybe Max have read this really carefully. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, So Paul's greeting, I want, I want us to notice in that verse 2, the request that he makes on their behalf, I want to see his desire for them and the source from, he, from which he draws to accomplish that. And, and, and as we're going through this, we, we will be asking, we should be asking, hopefully we'll answer, why does Paul do this? Why does he ask for grace and peace for them? Okay. Again, verse 2, notice what he says. Here's his, really his greeting here. It says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is his common greeting found in most of his epistles. Paul wrote at least 13 of these. There's debate on whether he wrote Hebrews. I don't think he wrote Hebrews. But there's a, those who say he did. But of the 13 epistles that Paul wrote... His most common greeting is this right here, grace to you and peace. The exact form is found in Romans, it's found in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, Philemon, okay? It is a common introduction. Though this is his standard greeting, we should not just pass it by as though it was unimportant. Because he's not just filling up space on a piece of papyrus, okay? That's not what he's doing. He's not just following some mindless template on how to write a letter in the first century. 
Okay. Oh, oh, I forgot the greeting and he inserted it. No, that's not what he's doing, right? <laughs> this is well-chosen, carefully chosen words with purpose and meaning. Especially with our understanding, right, of 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching and reproof and such. If all scriptures God breathe, this then is important. It's more than a mere just fill the page greeting. So then let us slow down and observe what Paul desires for them and for us since we are included in saints here. What does it that Paul desires for us in grace to you and peace from God? Since this is his greeting, follow my thinking here. In the majority of his epistles, since this is his common greeting, we notice then that he desires grace and peace, not only for groups he considers a joy like the Philippians, they were joyful to him, but even to those who were difficult, such as the Galatians and the Corinthians. He gives the same greeting, okay? And not only to those who had, he had a close relationship with, like Philippians, but also those who he never met, such as the Colossians. He gives the same greetings, okay? Even though this is his common greeting, you have to ask, well, isn't it genuine? Of course it is. Does he not mean it? Of course he does. Is he not truthful? Yes, he is. And he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Okay. So then, what is revealed here when Paul says grace to you and peace, I just want to throw this out before we launch off, is here revealed to us is Paul's heart for the church. It is the very heart of Christ for his church, Paul loves what Christ loves. All Christians should love what Christ loves. Christ loves his church. Ephesians later tells us he gave his life for the church. The church is not only the body of Christ, but is the bride of Christ. He laid his life down for her to sanctify her. He is constantly seeking her best, Jesus is. He is, it says in Ephesians 5, nourishing and cherishing her. Presently, right now, Jesus is nourishing and cherishing his bride, his church. Because of transforming grace in the life of the Apostle Paul, the Apostle is like his Lord. He has a great concern for the churches. He even says that in 2 Corinthians 11, that he has a daily pressure on him, which is a concern for all the churches. Paul's greeting, then, is part of that concern here, okay? His concern is, is that they know grace and peace from God. So this is a genuine desire then. We want to pick up these words. We want to look at them. Notice first that his desire here in verse 2 is to, for the saints, the holy ones, for believers. Okay, now get this. He's petitioning. Verse 2, in essence, is a petition. And it's on behalf of saints. Grace and peace for saints. Okay? If the divinely inspired apostle makes the genuine request for grace and peace on behalf of all true believers, then it is true then that all true believers need grace and peace. Presently and constantly. Don't they? Now. Do you need grace in your life or is it, are you done with it? Right? Yeah. Now, it's true, every, follow this, every and all saints, they have already received and experienced God's grace and peace at conversion, okay, at salvation. 
a, a past tense, if you will, a past experience in, in, in conversion. But we learn from Paul here in this greeting that saints continue to need God's grace in their daily lives. Now think of this. We, we believers have the Holy Spirit, just as a parallel. We are in Him and He is in us. Never does He depart. Never does He depart. But we are commanded to be filled. We, we are indwelt by the Spirit of God and we are in Him, but we're also commanded to be filled. Okay? So that's, that's, so we, it's, it's an already, not yet, it's an already, keep going. We have experienced grace and peace. But here's a request for, for more grace and more peace, if you will. Verse 2 then is basically a, a prayer, petitioning God to continually shower His people with His grace. To experience grace at increasing levels and, or perhaps at fresh daily supplies of grace. It, it could be something like 2 Peter 3.18 where he says, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grace to you then is a request that we not grow static or complacent in our walk with Christ or become spiritually dull. Because if you're a recipient of grace, he, he's, the power of God is, is moving you, it's ministering to you, okay? To think that you have so plateaued spiritually that there's no need for grace, this is what he wants to correct. This also, to be satisfied in your relationship with Christ to where you stop seeking Him. That's foolishness. That would be like... The day after getting married, you stop pursuing your wife. Right? That's ridiculous. Now that she's mine, I don't have to chase her anymore. <laughs> no, that's not the way it is. Since we can grow in this, follow this thinking, please. Since we can grow in this, this grace that is being promised here, the prospect of experiencing Him and grace to a deeper level is quite thrilling, actually. Do you you see, for the saints, there is the potential for a constant, deepening, growing understanding of the living God. That excites me. A personal, intimate, experiential knowledge is what it means to know Him, to be saved. But it's not static. It doesn't plateau. It's vibrant, which means it's alive and it's growing. Alive and it's growing, and that's a result of grace. It is grace. Listen to 2 Peter 1, 2. At the end of the second verse in 2 Peter 1, he says this, and this is Peter. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. And the idea there, the fullest measure, is this idea of growing ever more. Okay? So it's not static. It's not a one-time transaction, a one-time deal. This is something that God started when He saved you. And now Paul is saying, more grace to you, more grace to you, more grace to you. Okay? It's a growing, deepening relationship. It gives me goosebumps, actually. Um, so then, Paul, out of love for the church, here in this greeting, verse 2, says that grace to you and peace from God is his concern. We'll examine these two words. Grace, very familiar term, obviously. A most familiar Christian term is a tremendous word, a tremendous truth. It's certainly one of Paul's favorite words. In all of his epistles combined, 
I counted 83 times that this word is used. And it might be more. Okay, It's at least 83 times charis is used, the noun. 12 times he uses it in Ephesians. 12 times. In just for information to parallel that to or contrast with, Peter uses this word 10 times in his two epistles. Right? So Paul is known as the apostle of grace for, for a reason, for a purpose. Okay? Now this Greek term, charis, is a broad, comprehensive term. It can include in its meaning, get this, love, mercy, kindness, goodness, even gentleness can be in this idea of grace. Okay? Trench, who is a, a, a word uh, grammarian 100 years plus ago, says this, It is hardly too much to say that the mind of God has in no word uttered itself and all that was in his heart more distinctly than in this word, grace. Do you see what he said? Did I quote that right? Did it make sense to you? In other words, the grammarian is saying the word grace is the word God chose that is best describes his heart, who he is. Okay? Um, I think we would conclude. Do you remember when um, Moses was in the cleft of the rock? He asked the Lord God to show him his glory. In Exodus, let me read this to you. It just came to my brain. This is so glorious. You, this is where Moses was put in the cleft of the rock and God passed in front of him. It, this is God's response to Moses asking the Lord, show me your glory. Okay. So what is going to follow then is God saying, okay, this is my glory. And I would have thought he would have showed up in thunder and lightning and did all kinds of cool things that he would have said, wow, this is neat. But he didn't. This is what he said. Exodus 34, 5. You just write it down in 6. Listen, please. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him, that is Moses, as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed. Okay? So the Lord preached something in response to the request for glory. And this is what the Lord preached. The Lord, this is what he said, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, which we could equate mercy, at least there, and truth. Okay? This is what God says to Moses, this is my glory. So when, back to Ephesians, when the grammarian says that the word grace is what God chose best to express who he is in his heart, that fits the Old Testament. This is what he told Moses. Okay? So grace is, is this great term that, that belongs to our God. Grace is so, so much connected to God that it... In Titus 2.11, I think you brought this up even two weeks ago, brothers, too. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. In, 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 in the gospel, right, God's grace, His attributed grace shows up in that He's merciful and gracious to sinners. And indeed, that's the grace, the gospel of grace. But I think you also can say that the grace of God that appeared is the person of Jesus Christ. He is the grace of God, you see. So 
So this term grace not only describes God, the grace also is God. Jesus Christ is grace. Okay, He is the grace of God. So then, we say then, He Himself is the grace of God. John says about Jesus, He's full of grace and truth. Ephesians 2 will add to it, He Himself is our peace. Okay, So Christ is the personification, perfect personification of this attribute of grace, so much so that He is the grace of God. He's also the peace of God, okay, in the person of Christ. So, now, further definition of charis, the Greek term. It has the idea of kindness in that a kind act, get this now, which gives joy to the beholder of it. We're describing grace further here. It's, a, it's an act which gives joy to the beholder. A kind act. An act of kindness that brings joy. Grace then brings joy. That's its goal. Okay. It's also used to describe that which was a favor freely done without claim or expectation of return. A kind act done for your joy with no expectation of return, reciprocal action. Okay, This is grace. Okay, Now, Trench would add to this, and I think it really rounds it out nice. He would add, it finds its only motive in the bounty and the free-heartedness of the giver. Okay, In the bounty, so the abundance, and the free-heartedness of the giver. Grace, then, is an act of kindness towards someone with no expectation of return, but simply from the desire to make someone happy. It is according to the freedom of my choice, my heart's desire. Okay, No coercion, no merit, no condition. It's unconditional, it's unmerited, in fact, it's undeserved. And isn't that the definition most of us learned about grace is that it is the unmerited or undeserved favor of God. Yeah. Okay? So then, God doing an act of kindness for us, undeserved by us, from the overflow of his heart, simply because he desired to make us happy and for his praise. Right? Which, think about this. God does that which makes him happy. So to have grace towards you for your happiness makes God happy. I like that. It's true. (laughs) And I like that. In the classical Greek, get this now, which is pre-Christ, the hundreds of years before Jesus Christ, classical Greek, and in the Greek writings of the first century, outside the New Testament, okay, grace... This word was a familiar term, but grace was always directed towards one considered a friend. Never ever, in fact, it's unheard of, grace for an enemy. Right there, isn't it? You immediately see the distinction between the pagan and the New Testament use of the word grace. The Lord Jesus Christ died intentionally for those he considered his enemies. A thing I heard of at the time. No one in recorded history before the cross of that day ever died for an enemy. Right? They might die for a friend. They might die for someone good, but never for an enemy. No grace for an enemy. Only vengeance. Only so-called justice. Right? 
Can we hold your finger here? Can I just take you to Romans 5? Something familiar, but it kind of lays this out. In Romans 5, 6 through 8 is the passage. So the grace... And remember, we said we can include love and mercy and kindness in this word grace. It's unmerited favor. Okay? The grace which Paul speaks of is uniquely God's. It's, it's absolutely foreign to the world. It, it, fallen, sinful humans do not show grace. They do not do grace. They do not die for their enemies' happiness. Period. Right? But God did. So look at chapter 5 of Romans Six, seven, maybe down to ten. Look at this. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So Christ died for the ungodly. Verse seven, he, he'll explain further when he says, For no one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. So that's the world's thinking, because look at verse 8 starts, But God, in contrast to the world's thinking, God demonstrates, puts on display His own love towards us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, verse 9, Much more than, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. Finally, verse 10, For if while we were what? Enemies. We were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. When you were his enemy, he died. You see, God's grace is God choosing to do an act of kindness for his enemy's joy. That's God's kind of love. That's God's kind of grace. That's unmerited favor, undeserved. Okay? So then, back to Ephesians. Get this. The saints then, the saints in Ephesians chapter 1 there, have already received and experienced this grace of salvation. These are believers. Okay? They understand what the gospel teaches about regeneration and reconciliation. They understand the gospel of grace. But go on here in chapter 1. I want to show you here quickly what Paul says in this letter about the grace that they have. Because remember verse 2 He's requesting growth in grace, more grace. But what is it they already have? What is it you already have? What is it you've already experienced as a saint? Well, look at verse 6. Chapter 1 of Ephesians, verse 6. He says, To the praise of the glory of His grace. And you have to ask, what is to the praise of the glory of His grace? And that's the previous verses of 4 and 5, which verse 4 is, chose us in Him, so that's the doctrine of election. Verse 5 is predestination. So, election and predestination, verse 4 and 5, are to the praise of the glory of His grace. Okay, That then is, think about it, if that's grace as we've defined it, here is an act of kindness by God to the undeserving to bring them joy. It's not deserved in any way whatsoever, but is from the bounty and the free-heartedness of God. Okay? Before time. Before time, it says. So grace was directed towards you before time, which is amazing. Um, 
Look at verse 7, please. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. What's your text say, the rest of 7? Speak to me. According to the riches of his grace. So the, the verse 7 is according to the riches of his grace. The redemption, the forgiveness is in harmony with the riches that the, 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 the wealth of his unmerited favor. Okay. Verse 8. What is your verse 8? What did he do with this grace? Lavish. Lavish. Don't you love that word? I love that word. God is not stingy. He's not like you and me. All right? Let's get over it. God lavishes. It, it brings God joy to lavish unmerited favor on undeserving sinful people. He loves to do that. He lavishes it. It gives me goosebumps. He lavishes the riches of his grace. It would be like, it would be like a king in the, in the Mediterranean um, who has just bucketfuls of gold coins and he just wants to, out of the goodness of his heart and his desire to make you happy, he wants to lavish this all on you. So it's like Schmaug in that movie, that dragon that burnt, what movie is that? <laughs> Hobbit, yeah, you know that gold thing? That's, that's the riches of His grace. Even that doesn't measure the riches of God's grace, but you know what I'm trying to do there, right? <laughs> that's to be lavished. Picture yourself in there diving in and all that, and that's grace. God's grace. Lavished on you, man. It's already happened in this text. So in 4 and 5, election, predestination before time, God's grace chose you. In, in time, Christ came and redeemed you. And that forgiveness is what is the grace that's lavished on you. Amazing. There's more to be said, but I won't. Quickly go over to chapter 2, please. Chapter 2. That grace, undeserved and unearned favor... Look at this here. In verses, I want to pick it up at 1 through, how about 3 through 7 for now. Look at this. Among them, we too, Paul includes himself, all formerly, before, lived in the lusts of our flesh, before conversion, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That means the unconverted people are under the wrath of God, okay, because of their sin and His righteousness. Verse 4, though, look at what it says, but God, in contrast, but God being rich, there's a term again, in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, tense, past. Verse 5, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Do you see why it's grace? Because dead people, spiritually dead people, don't do anything to please God. Spiritually dead people who are enemies of God, they're hostile to God. They are the ones whom He saves. 
He doesn't save righteous people. You know why? Because there ain't none. Right? There ain't none. The Pharisees thought they were, but they ain't. God came to save wretched, lost, spiritually dead sinners who are by character and nature enemies of God. And it was God's desire to do a kind act to them in saving them for their joy. That's why he did that. And that's grace. That's grace. Look at what he does in... in Did we end up in five? Yeah. Look at six and seven here. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Strange language there, but look at... You are, by grace supernaturally, spiritually united to Christ so that His experience is yours. Notice how it says in verse 6, raised us up with Him. As He was resurrected, those in Him are resurrected. So you are, according to this, actually raised from the dead with Christ. And verse 6, actually seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Okay, Whether you feel like it or not, the fact of the matter is that's a spiritual reality. An act of grace. Okay, look at verse 7. Why did he do this in verse 7? So that, there's your purpose, in the ages, plural, to come, future, he might show, might put on display the surpassing, there's our word again, riches of his grace in kindness towards us. You are a trophy of grace that he's going to show in the ages to come in the future. You are going to be a display, like on the mantle, (laughs) of how rich God is in grace. Is that not glorious? You've already have that, see? This is past act stuff. This is yours if you're in Christ Jesus. You are a recipient, lavished upon, showered from the riches of His unmerited favor. And it's undeserved. It's unmerited It has no, you have no part in that whatsoever other than the open hand of faith to receive it. Look at 8 and 9. Look at 8 and 9. Look at the diametrically opposed to one another's works and grace. Verse 8. For by grace you have been what? Saved. Saved. Through the channel, faith. Is faith a work? No, because look at the rest. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So grace and salvation and faith. You can put all three of those in there and be included and put a bow around it and call it the gift of God. Okay? A gift of God. Look at the next verse, please, 9. Not as a result of, what did your text say? And why is it not of works? So you don't boast. Do you see? Grace is unconditional, unmerited, undeserved favor. Any works involved, it's no longer grace. It's no longer grace. They're diametrically opposed to one another. They're mutually exclusive of each other. The moment you add works to grace, it's no longer grace. It's no longer grace. It's through faith. Faith is the open hand receiving the gift of God. Okay? We've all received that. 
It's all of grace. This is, these are the saints in Ephesus. This is what he's talking about. Grace, then, is a free gift given. Faith is the open hand that receives it with joy. There is no works involved. In fact, works nullifies it. Um, if we had, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to go here, but you can write this down. Romans 4, 2 through 4, and Romans 11, 5 through 6 kind of amplifies what I just said. I think we'll leave it at that. I think it's enough. Okay. Um, so then, get this. Christ crucified is God's grace. If you can be saved in any other way, if you can make yourself right before God by your own religious efforts, then Christ died for nothing. Galatians 2.21. Futile and foolish. So then, get to every aspect of our salvation is by grace alone. Every aspect of our salvation is by grace alone. Election, predestination, before time, to the praise of the glory of His grace. Okay, The, the, the effectual call, when the gospel comes and you heard it, and you responded. That was an effectual call. And Paul says in Galatians 1.15 that he was called by grace. You were called by grace. Grace is powerful because it accomplishes what God sends it to do. He called you through grace. He chose you by grace. Romans 3.24, listen, talks about justification. And I'm just going to rifle through here without turning to these. Quote, as a gift by His grace is justification. Okay? It's a gift by His grace. What is justification? Does that mean? Making something right. Making something right, or better yet, in the New Testament version, is declaring that thing right. Even though I'm not right, I'm not righteous in character, but I am by declaration, mm-hmm. positionally, right? Okay, so justification is a legal term where the judge declares you not guilty, pardoned, and righteous. Okay, that is a gift of grace. It's by faith you receive that. It's a gift of grace. Okay, so much so that Romans five two says that we stand in a state of grace. Okay, and in Romans six fourteen we're no longer under law but under what? Grace. Okay. So no longer under the law of Moses, we're under the, under the law or the principle of grace, the unmerited favor of God. So you have, before time, grace, chose and predestined. In time, the effectual gospel call, the gospel of grace, came to you and grace opened your eyes and grace drew you to Christ okay, and saved you. Justification, being declared right before the judge, is by grace. Okay? So that you stand in a state of grace. Now future, glorification, future time. 1 Peter 1.13 says, The grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So there's grace yet to be received in the future. Okay. See, everything that God does for us is grace. Okay. I had my, my first theology teacher at Montana Bible College told me everything outside the lake of fire is the grace of God. Right? And that's true. And we need to understand that. Every, each one of our lives up to this point right now has been under the lavish grace of God. Right? How are you doing? 
better than I deserve. You know what you say by that? You understand it's grace. Better than I deserve. Right? Do we really believe that though? <laughs> right? The grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We already read in Ephesians 2, 7 that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of, the, of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ. Okay? Alright. So then Paul says, in addition to this, his particular ministry of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, he, he calls that in chapter 3 a couple different times of Ephesians. He says this, If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, he says in chapter 3, verse 7, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of His power, to me the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Okay? His ministry is grace. His salvation is grace. According to Ephesians 4, 7, but to each one of us grace was given. Okay? And he goes on to say apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers. Those are, those are gifts of grace given to those men who are then given to the church. 1 Peter 4 says that all believers are to be stewards of the grace of God. You are gifted by God the moment you were converted. You were spiritually endowed with an ability that the Holy Spirit uniquely gave to you to use that in the body of Christ, and it's called a gift of grace. Okay, So your salvation, your spiritual giftedness is all a gift of grace. This is amazing grace indeed. Yeah? And they have all this, these people in Ephesus that he writes grace to you. They, they have experienced this. They have received this. This is theirs. They, 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 but there's more. It's like, Lord, you're killing me with kindness. It's just, it's, it, it's so lavished, I'm drowning. It's so much grace, I'm drowning, right? It's amazing. There's more. How can it be? He's speaking of more grace yet. Grace to you. He's calling on God the God of all grace, to lavish even more grace today. To pour out grace, to dispense more and more undeserved favor to meet the pressing needs of your life today. Wow. He's requesting my amplifying, please allow me to do so. Lavish your kindness and goodness, that's grace, upon them as they have need. When do you have need for grace in this life? Well, how about this? How about when we are spiritually weak? How about when temptations come and tempt you into sin? When you're not so strong? How about when faith is weak and you're feeble? Or maybe you're not... Maybe you are a superstar saint and you're never in that condition. <laughs> Some Christian doubt God's goodness and love. How about when the world comes against us with its malice and hatred and fury and persecution and oppresses and even seeks to do us harm and we're afraid? Might lose your job, might lose your home, might whatever. How about trials? You need grace in trials. How about sufferings? 
Sufferings that seem overwhelming and unbearable. How about suffering that seems like deep, dark waters? You need grace for that? I do. Rejoice, Christian. It's available. That's why Paul says grace to you. It's available. Grace to you. What a God. What a God. The grace to keep us believing. The grace to sanctify us. The grace to discipline us. To overcome the power of sin. To put off sin and to put on righteousness. The grace to empower us for faithful fruit, for service. To conform us more and more into Christ's very likeness. That grace is available. Grace to you. Grace to you. Grace we have. Grace we need. You know what? Grace we get. And it's not stingy. He's not going to say, well... You want a hundred bucks? I'll give you ten. See how you do with it. No, he gives you a thousand. He gives you a thousand. Go to Hebrews 4, please. I think this is what Hebrews is talking about. It's so cool. Look at verse 16. Therefore, coming off a high priest who can sympathize with us, let us draw near, draw near to God, with what? Confidence. Assurance. Where are we drawing near to? A throne. What's a throne for? Who sits on a throne but a king? What, is, what characterizes this throne? Grace, not righteousness, not judgment. He's emphasizing the unmerited favor of God. And he says, you come with confidence, sinner. Can you imagine if it was the throne of judgment, you do not come with confidence because there's, there's a natural recoil because we're not righteous in and of myself. But sinners can come with full confidence to the throne which is characterized by grace, unmerited favor. And look at this confidence in verse 16, please. What are you expecting to get? Mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. See, so this, this is, I think, the idea here is that we have received so much grace and salvation. And yes, we have, we're recipients and we've been set apart and saved and justified and we're going to be glorified. But this is the daily need of God's favor. Call on Him with confidence. He's not stingy. You're not going to wear Him out. I've heard people say, you know, I, I just hate to ask God because I'm, I think He'll get tired of hearing me. You don't know God. You don't know God. That would be like me getting tired to hear about from my kid. Are you kidding me? If he had real needs and hurts, now I ain't got time for you. God's not that way. The door's wide open, beloved, to the throne of grace. Grace to you, says our Apostle Paul. Back to Ephesians. And this will be shorter than the grace part. 
grace to you. And then he says, the second word of concern here is peace. Grace and peace. I think peace, most commentators would say that the peace mentioned here is the result of the grace. Okay? So I'm going to go with that. Okay? So here the connection, the grace, the unmerited favor is what then results in this peace that's coming second here. Now the word peace, the root word to this means to join, to join together. So think of this. To join, when things are disjointed, there's a lack of harmony, a lack of well-being. But the Greek term means to bring together, okay? So that when things are joined together, there is both this idea of harmony and well-being. This is the idea of peace. And this then leads to the Hebrew meaning of shalom. Shalom is peace. Shalom is the whole person. Okay, just not a, it's not only a lack of hostility, peace, what we would understand, and there's no troubles, but the Hebrew word shalom has the idea, not only is there not troubles, it's because the inner person and the outer person is tranquil, at peace, at whole, complete, joined together. Okay, all right. A state of untroubled, undisturbed well-being, tranquility, no hostility, a oneness in this peace. They have peace with God when they believed, according to Romans 5.1. Since we believe, we justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have that already. We have reconciliation. We, the enemy, those outside the lines, right, have been brought near, been brought in line to God through the cross of Christ. You've been reconciled. That which caused the enmity has been dealt with by God on your behalf. Okay? That's grace. The result of that is this reconciliation, this peace, okay? A oneness been brought together. Now, you have that peace right now, even though you might not feel it, even though you are genuinely converted and justified by faith. It's not a feeling. It is an objective truth. But what Paul speaks about here is the subjective element of peace. Subjective means your feelings. When you feel at peace, you have a tranquility. You have a calmness, right? Um, there's some people who have a calmness and they should be excited, <laughs> right? So, but you know what? I, so what this is talking about, the peace that he's petitioning is beyond the reconciliation with God. It's, it's beyond the peace with our Maker in the sense of we're no longer in at enmity. We are children of God. We are saints, and sometimes saints, and sometimes children do not experience the peace that God gives. You're a Christian. You ever been unsettled in your soul? Yes. There you go. End of story. Right? <laughs> there you go. So then, this... This, this, uh, this, this, the saints have this peace of conversion permanently, but the subjective feeling of tranquility is what he's after here. It is, it is this sense of safety. It is this sense of security. It is this sense of, as your friends down under would say, no worries, mate. Right? That's this idea. This is, you know, what does that, that, that tell you? If this is Paul's desire for the church, what does that say about Christ's desire for the church? 
He wants you to know the peace of soul. There's no virtue in people running around unsettled in their soul, wondering if they're saved or not, and they're the children of God. That does not bring glory to God. God wants His children. Um, important point, word, His children, His reconciled, born-again saints. He wants them to experience the joy and the peace that Christ purchased. Amen. Right? He does. And when we don't, we do Him a disfavor. It's that serious. Who do you represent on this planet? You represent Him. There is grace and peace at our disposal. That's what this means. This is not just words on a paper. This is inspired by the Spirit of God for the church's well-being, for my happiness and God's glory. This is what this is. It's available to you. Call on Him. Don't accept it. Knock it off. Quit it. I'm serious. Quit it. When I'm troubled in my soul and it's not, it's not, it's not virtuous, it's not, it's not a righteous trouble, then I'm sinning. Why am I troubled like this? I'm not believing God. I'm not taking him at his word. And we find virtue in that because it's like penance. Oh, look how sorry I am, God. God says, I give you all the grace. I'll lavish grace on you so that you will sense the peace. Do you understand what I'm saying? Quit acting like Catholics. Right? I say it with all due respect. Right? Because they do penance. And they beat themselves up to show how sorry they are to God. That's What's that do about the grace of God? How does, that, how, does that, how does that show that one is trusting in the lavish grace of God? It's not. John 14. <laughs> I'm going here because I think you'll be blessed to see it. Jesus makes these promises. John 14, two places. This is the last night of his, before his crucifixion. He's talking to his faithful 11. Judas is gone. Verse 27, look at what he says here. 14:27. Peace I leave with you. My peace, his own, you see, I give to you as a gift. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Now, in that context, peace is contrasted with don't be troubled. Don't be unsettled. I'm giving you peace. Okay? Jesus gives his peace. Chapter 16, please. This is the same night. This is toward the end because the high priestly prayer takes off in 17. The last verse of 16, look at what he says. He says, these things I have spoken to you these three chapters. 1633, these things I have spoken to you so that result in me. You may have what? In the world you have tribulation. In Christ you have peace. It's available to every person in Christ. Even though you're in the world of trouble, you are in Christ by grace and you experience His peace. Sounds good to me. Because he has overcome the world. Thank you, sister. Right? As it finishes, verse 33, how did this happen? He overcame the world. He purchased that for you. 
overcome the world through the cross and resurrection. Right? That's part of the blessing, the grace of Christ. Right? Um, we won't look there, but you remember the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5? Love, joy. Oh, there it is, peace. <laughs> right? You know what that tells you? Are you always filled with the Spirit of God so that you are a tree that has the Spirit fruit on it? Are you always that way? I mean, are you always walking fully yielded to the Spirit of God? If so, why am I commanded to be filled with the Spirit if I'm always filled with the Spirit? I'm indwelt by the Spirit, but I'm commanded to be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit fills me. As He fills me, He produces the fruit of Galatians 5.22. Not just one fruit and this fruit and this fruit. All of that tree is on display when you are yielded to the Spirit of God. And one of those things is love, joy, and peace. That tells me then that's subjective peace. That piece of Galatians 5, which is the fruit of the Spirit, is a settledness, a shalom, a tranquility. Is my Spanish friends tranquilo? Right? Muy tranquilo. <laughs> right? That means things are cool. Right? Things are cool. That's the gift of the Spirit of God at your disposal. How about when it says in Philippians 4, be anxious for some things? No. Be anxious for nada. Right? Nada. Look at what it says. I know this is very familiar text to us. But look at 4, 6, and 7 of Philippians 4, written from the same prison cell, the same house arrest that Ephesians is written from. Okay? So he probably finishes Ephesians and sometime later he's going to write Philippians and here it is. But it's from the same place that he writes this. Verse 6 and 7. The command in verse 6 is be anxious for nothing. But instead, use your energy in prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving. That's an attitude. Let your requests be made known to God. Not because he's ignorant, but you need to make it known because he told you so. When you make your request known to God, what is the promise? The next verse is the promise. Yeah. What, what preceded the promise? What did you do that then led to the promise? You just prayed. I, I use the word just, but you prayed. You didn't go manipulate nothing. You didn't go shoot anybody. You didn't go flatten any tires. You didn't get rid of troubles, right? You didn't write a note to the president. You didn't do any of that stuff. You prayed in the manner described, verse 7, and the peace of God, the peace which comes from God. God is the source. That peace, look at what it says, what surpasses, it goes beyond all comprehension, all understanding and misunderstanding. It goes beyond it. You can't explain it. It will guard like a centurion. It'll guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Why is that so? Because when you're anxious, you make stupid, ungodly decisions. Amen? Out of fear. When the peace of God 
fills you, it guards your heart from stupid thoughts and godly thoughts and stupid decisions. It's what it says. The peace of God. Back to Ephesians, and I'm going very quickly here. Thank you for your patience. So think with me. Grace to you, unmerited favor for your happiness, and shalom, a a tranquility, a settledness of soul, which means your soul is satisfied. It means your soul has found satisfaction, has it not? When you're dissatisfied, you're not at peace. So part of this peace and shalom is the satisfaction that comes from Christ. I have tasted of Him. And I don't go anywhere else. I go to Him. Amen? Amen. Look at the source, finally. Peace, grace and peace from, verse 2, Ephesians 1, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I just want you to pick real simply here. He starts with God, our Father. God, think of God. God, the Almighty. God, the Creator, Sustainer, Sovereign Ruler of all the universe. That God. That God happens to be our Father. He emphasizes the familial devotion. The familiar love, a love of a father for his children. If he is our father, what are we? We are his kids. We are his niños. We are his children, right? We are his children. He is our father. Our father happens to be the almighty creator, the omnipotent one of the universe. He is the source of the grace and peace. But not only that, as you see in verse 2, notice the little connector, the conjunction between the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and tells you and shows you grammatically that this this is equal ground. The Father is equal with the Son and the Son is equal with the Father. They are co-sources, if you will. They are in cahoots. They are working together in granting you grace and peace. That's amazing. This then is putting Jesus Christ on equal plane with the Father. How glorious God the Father is, is how glorious Jesus Christ is. He is called, in verse 2, the Lord, kurios. That, that is, the idea, not only is He equal with God, Lord translates the, 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 the Septuagint for Yahweh, God, but also it speaks of, in this text here, that He is master and sovereign ruler. He is the sovereign one. Jesus speaks to His humanity. He came to earth, took on flesh, walked on this planet, went to that cross in humanity as our representative. Christ speaks of Messiah. He is the promised Messiah King of Israel, of the world. Okay? All in this name, all in this title. God, the Almighty, Omnipotent, is our Daddy. Jesus is our Sovereign Master, Ruler, who is our representative who is the Messiah King. They are joint, if you will, sources of the grace and the peace requested. 
If God is our Father, we are His children. If Jesus is our Lord, we are His slaves. Our Father and our Master, our Father and our Master are so devoted to our well-being that they lavish freely upon us grace and shalom, peace. That is glorious. Absolutely glorious. All resources we need to live a life to the glory of God is in that word grace. (laughs) And the result of that is this peace that does not worry about today. Does not worry about today. So then let us conclude here. Let us continue to walk by faith in Christ trusting in Him and His love for us, calling on Him for the grace needed to live, and I add, to die for Him. And He will grant a tranquil soul that will not be unhinged by this evil world, but will remain true to Him. I wrote this down this morning, Michael, and I'm going to read it because I expect it. it's from God. Because you read from Romans 8... I want one verse, right? This, this excited me when I heard what you were reading. Grace and peace coming from God as we need it. This is to encourage you. Listen to Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things. His Son is the most glorious, highest value gift He could ever give. So He's already given the greatest gift. Everything else I need is well below that. Do you see His argument from the greater to the lesser? He's already done the greatest. Now, your request is something far lesser. Do you think He's going to withhold from you something lesser when He's already given you the greatest? No, that's his argument. All that to say, and and I'll shut up here, I promise. This is to encourage you in all saints that all that you need is available in Christ Jesus. There is nothing you need that he does not have. There's nothing that you need that he's not more than willing to lavish upon you. Why would we look anywhere else? That's why we exist, to promote the fame of Jesus Christ for the glory of God and the joy of all people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. Thank you that you have opened our eyes to see your Son. You have put it in our heart to love him. We ask that you would help us, Lord, to live in a manner worthy of the calling. That we would consistently and daily call on you for grace. Not only for ourselves, but for each other, Lord. We give you the praise. You are certainly most blessed. In Jesus' name, amen.